Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men, the podcast about tabletop role-playing games, board games, and tabletop war games. I'm the host, Troy. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. You can call me Ed. My pronouns are they and them, and I've single-handedly ruined the pun that is the name of our show. Eh. Yes, because you're aging in reverse, right? Yes. My hair is slowly going uh, from white back to brown as we speak. Yes, it's 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 weird to watch. Today our topic is the bard. Bards probably my favorite class in all of D&D. They're a good D&D class. I do like a bard. We're going to ask ourselves like what's the historical context? How did they become a D&D class? What sort of things have they done in past editions? And why are they so cool? But before we get to that, we're going to do the hobby segment. Yay, hobby. So what about you? What You start this time. I went first last time. This week, I've mostly been uh, getting my HeroQuest stuff put together and painted. Yeah. I have cranked out a huge pile of the little terrain, the 3D terrain pieces that come in the box torture racks and alchemy tables and uh, tombs and empty doors and chests and fireplaces and tables and yeah. Only got a handful of those left. Um, and then I can move on to the heroes. And then the questing once the heroes are done. Yes, once I have the heroes, I can begin the questing. I'm gonna get the core heroes done and then start work on all the monsters that I need for the first scenario. Because... You bizarrely need all the terrain in the very first mission. That is kind of weird. Yeah, and you need most of the monsters, because, like, I think one of everything shows up. <laughs> a la carte monsters, one of everything. Maybe that's maybe that's more of a buffet style. Yeah, you get a lot of goblins, so it's not just one of everything, but you get at least one of every monster in there, I think. Everybody gets one. Yeah. It's it's kind of to familiarize the players with what they're going to be fighting, but also it's real annoying as the person painting all of these things to have to do them all before I can do even the like learning mission. Yeah, but in the in the original design philosophy of the game back in like the eighties and nineties, did they ever actually anticipate that anybody would ever paint these? Oh yeah, remember the original miniatures were solid. Uh, were they metal or plastic? I think they were metal. I thought they were plastic. Yeah, they might have been. I don't been... know. I'll have to ask Tex. I'm pretty sure his family has an original copy of HeroQuest. I think you're right. They might have been plastic. Yeah, because they were colored plastic. And they were made by Games Workshop or Citadel Miniatures or whatever they were at the time. So they definitely intended them to be painted. Yeah, they, they were not... They knew these were going to become painted miniatures from the get-go. Getting them young. Yeah, I mean, it was the first, like, painting thing for a lot of people who were into this sort of stuff. And we only had to wait, like, an extra 20, 30 years <laughs> before we could jump onto that train. Well, yeah, but also, we were, like, two or three years old when it came out. So, not quite the target demographic. But we are now. We are now nostalgic for a game we never played as kids. Yay! 
Hey, what did you do in hobby this week? Uh, it's been a very busy week. I got a collapsible sewing table that is perfect for just about any game need. My copy of Rising Sun that I pre-ordered from over a year and a half ago finally showed up, so now I can do even more Pacific War shenanigans whenever I'm able to get back to Advanced Squad Leader in the hypothetical future. Uh, like you, my Hero Quest is also here. I haven't... I've, like, cracked it open to look at the contents, but I haven't gotten any kind of jump on that. I played the demo scenario for Marvel Crisis Protocol, which is what I'm painting right now, and I don't know why I hesitated or was so uninterested just seeing it at first, but now I'm pretty much all in. And then I also did another campaign through Dark Souls, which I haven't played in probably four years, and it's a game that I have opinions on. So it's been a, it's been a busy week. Yes. Well, if you have opinions on it, then we can do that for the board game segment at the end of this. It's it's infu it's infuriating, and I love it, but I also hate it, much like the video game, but for different reasons. I, I don't know. Right. So, save those thoughts. That'll be the board game segment. Sounds good. And with our hobby stuff out of the way, let's talk bards. Pew, pew, pew. If I had a hypothetical soundboard, this is where I'd insert some kind of musical sting. The bard. The term bard, historically, is from a Celtic term for professional storytellers who would typically work for a king or lord, and, you know, usually it was about glorifying that king or lord and their ancestors and making them look good and, you know, sound good to everybody. The bard in D&D is inspired, and they've specifically said, it's inspired by that, it's inspired by the Norse skalds, which were poets who worked in the courts of kings or jarls and wrote poetry that kind of wove mythological information along with, you know, glorifying the king they worked for, but also occasionally criticizing them. Uh, skalds had kind of a whole, had an interesting level of a, what they were allowed to get away with. It's a good way to lose your head if you go too far with it. Yes, that's uh, certainly a historical issue. It were also, you know, pulled from the European minstrels, you know, the medieval traveling entertainers and troubadours who would either work for a court or would travel from town to town, tell stories, make stuff up or embellish other people's stories. You know, all of these have kind of the storyteller aspect in common. And historically, wandering or traveling storytellers have been a thing from the get-go. As you have civilization, you have people who are willing to wander around and tell stories in order to get money. And mostly food. Sounds kind of like us. Yeah, but we don't travel that much. Well, I've got a laptop and a portable setup, so next time I have to uh, travel out of state for work, I'll still be able to record. Hey, there we go. We're bards, and not a ranger and, I guess, an artificer? Maybe. I always I always thought bard was the, the class that would correlate most with my real life, since I'm a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. I like to tell stories. I suppose. Generally, just kind of a lot of performancy-related things as a high school theater kid. Just, it seemed to fit. Uh, yeah, I suppose. I don't think my charisma is high enough to get any of the bard abilities, personally. Yeah, that, that could be an issue. 
traveling performers were a relatively well-documented thing in medieval and historical time periods. And so when Dungeons and Dragons came around and they were started making a game that was, you know, fantasy, medieval, having players be able to do that sort of character was something they wanted to do immediately. And in first edition, it was there. It wasn't a core class, though. It was sort of a prestige class. Bards had really high requirements. Well, you gotta put in your 10,000 hours. Yeah, except you had to be a fighter for several levels, and then a thief for several levels, and then you started training as a druid, and so you had the fighting abilities of a fighter, the, like, skill and trap abilities of a thief, and you knew druid spells and, like, druid, druid lore abilities. It's a very weird way to go about it. Yeah, first edition had some weird stuff for things beyond like fighter, thief, wizard. How you got to the more advanced classes was strange, especially looking at it from say, something like fifth edition, which doesn't have prestige classes. It just has paths for existing classes. By second edition, they had kind of streamlined it a bit. And the bard was in the player's handbook. However, it was restricted to humans and half-elves only. Old editions were like this. This was pretty restrictive, but not the most restrictive. Paladins were human only, which we will talk about when we do an episode on paladins, I suppose. The second edition bard had utility skills, uh, the same sort of fighting ability as the rogue, and the ability to cast spells similar to wizards up to and including having a spell book, just like the wizard did. They could also use pretty much any weapon, and because of this, they were surprisingly powerful in 2nd edition. I think my only experience with 2nd edition bards was the original versions of Baldur's Gate. There were a couple of bards in there, but at the time I never really got the nuance of playing the class, and they never seemed quite useful since I just would run up and smack stuff. I don't think they would be as useful in the video game versions of Dungeons & Dragons. Because uh, utility spells and utility skills don't come into play when the games are focusing mostly on combat. Just how video game D&D works. And then 3rd edition rolled around, and Bards, again, continued to be in the player's handbook. Main thing. Uh, big differences, though. They got their own spell list... So there was a specific list of spells that they could choose from in this class instead of just learning wizard spells like they did in the previous one. They also no longer needed a spellbook. They just learned spells and were able to cast spells, much like the sorcerer, which appeared in this edition as well. They got lots of skills. They got bardic music was kind of a thing. It had been before, but now it started to get effects that they could use based on their performed skills. And in 3.5... They were enhanced even further. What Bardic Music did and how it worked was improved quite a bit and made the class more unique. Yeah, it, it started to become a class that had its own thing. It wasn't particularly powerful, though. Oh, and I think by 3.5, the racial restriction on who could be a bard was removed. Yeah, I don't seem to remember any restrictions in that sense when we, when we did bards for 3.5. In 4th edition, which I never played a bard in 4th edition, I only played 4th edition a couple of times, 
Bards were in the Player's Handbook 2, along with things like Barbarians. And they were kind of a controller class that was good for buffs, debuffs, using their music to affect people on the battlefield. 4th edition was weird. I'm not going to go into it much. Bards had lots of skills and the ability to take as many multi-class feats as they wanted, which was a thing in 4th edition, I guess? Your guess is as good as mine. I never played 4th edition. But then we get to the 5th edition bard, which is probably what most of our listeners are going to be familiar with. The 5th edition bard is, again, a core class that's in the player's handbook, and it's one of the best support classes in the game. It and the cleric pretty much round that out. The bard has the ability to cast spells as a full caster, meaning they get spells from 1st level and can cast up to ninth level spells. Although the, like, total number of spells they can cast is lower than, say, the wizard or the sorcerer. But thanks to some other special skills they get, they don't just learn spells from the bard list. They get access to magical secrets that allow them to learn other people's spells, which means bards are the only class that can theoretically cast any spell in the game. I'm in your spellbook, stealing your knowledge. Yeah, I've played in games where the bard learned Eldritch Blast, which is typically a spell only known by warlocks. So could I do, in theory, like a heavy metal bard who knows, like, necromancy spells? 100%. Yas. Yeah, bards can... I mean, you you won't learn a whole lot of necromancy spells because the number of magical secrets you get is limited. But you could do a heavy metal bard that was like raising skeletons or whatever. Animating dead. Nice. 10 out of 10, best class. They are pretty dang good. Uh, They're also decent fighters, because they know how to use basic weapons, long swords, rapiers, and light armor from the get-go. Plus they have a d8 for hit dice, which is lower middle. It, it means you're not a frontline fighter, but also you're not the wizard with the d6. You're not going to die if somebody breathes on you. Not past first level, no. But they also have the big special thing for their class, which is Bardic Inspiration. They get a certain number of dice. Typically it starts as a d6, and then as you level up, the exact die gets bigger. And you can do an action to give that die to somebody. And then that person can within the next 10 minutes of game, add that die to a roll for an ability check, attack, or saving throw. And you don't have to use it until after the roll is made. So if you make a saving throw and you go, oh crap, I'm just shy of succeeding on this, you can add in that Bardic Inspiration die and save yourself. Just headbang that dice roll right in there. It it makes them really good at improving everyone around them. It's real helpful and real strong. Plus, like in previous editions, bards are great at skills. They have lots of skills and they have special abilities letting them be better at skills. At second level, they get a thing called Song of Rest, which just improves everyone else's healing when you're doing a short rest. And it does it without spending spell slots, which, again, makes them an amazing support class. So, as we've mentioned before, 
5th edition has different paths that characters can take. For bards, these are the colleges, the, you know, the w way your bard has trained and what they specialize in. The Player's Handbook has two different ones, the College of Lore and the College of Valor. They're pretty much straight up fighting or magic. The College of Lore is good at magic. You learn everybody else's spells, like we were kind of talking about. And you can, you know, do more things with this magic you've got. The College of Valor is better at combat. Uh, you get extra attack, like the fighters and barbarians do. And you get an ability that allows you to attack while casting spells, which is kind of cool and unique. And that's a pretty good starter set. But then they also have more. In Xanathar's Guide to Everything, you get the College of Glamour, which is about Feywild magic, uh, does charms and mind control stuff. Also works well for my hair metal version of the bard. Yeah, it does some cool, makes you look impressive or makes you look terrifying and like charms people or makes them fear you or whatever. The College of Swords, which is more combat, but in this case, it's combat as a form of performance. So you get like sword flourish abilities that allow you to kind of use your inspiration dice in combat. In different ways and you also get access to fighting styles which uh the college of valor does not um so it's a more fighty and a more performative fighty bard which is an interesting idea and then the college of whispers which does which has like bonus psychic damage and shadow disguises and like fear abilities they're very um they're they're bards that are also rogues pretty much it's good for, like, an evil bard, too. 100% great for, like, an evil spy bard. And then Tasha's Cauldron of Everything added two more. The College of Creation, which allows you to create and animate items with music and has some neat other effects that, like, when you give people inspiration, it has a bonus effect. The Creation Bard is doing that scene in Fantasia with the brooms. When I was reading through that section of the book, I was imagining a whole lot of shenanigans that I could get up to with that class. Yeah, they, the, just the ability to just make random shit come to life and dance around and fight people is, um, it's a shenanigan heavy subclass. My favorite kind of class. Yes. And then lastly, Tasha's also has the Eloquence Bard, which is... It's the persuasion bard, the social combat type. They have bonuses to persuasion. Uh, you get to keep your bardic inspiration dice longer instead of spending them. Um, sometimes they just come back instead of being spent. Yeah, they're, they're interesting. I don't know how I feel about them. For some reason, it made me think of, like, a Roman senator. Yeah, that it does kind of have that, like orator field someone who's just going to be giving speeches all the time it seems like it would be better almost for like some kind of main character npc who still has a class but might need those abilities yeah if they're going to like try and screw with the players and you know try and influence how they're thinking or if you have a group that's very role play heavy and you do a lot of dialogue that could be useful as far as just kind of your run-of-the-mill D&D group that's, you know, a lot of combat, a little bit of roleplay, some exploration. I don't really know how useful it could be, but you never know. Dragons are talkative. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I find issue with it for a roleplay group, actually. 
Because it's like charming and bonuses to performance and stuff actually start bringing mechanics into your role playing section. Yeah, that could be an issue. Which is always a little dangerous if the system is not built with those in mind. Creating a social combat mechanic is something that you need to think about pretty heavily. Um, there are uh, plenty of other games that have a social combat system where, you know, making persuasion checks and stuff. It's more of a White Wolf game type of thing. Yeah, White Wolf games do that pretty heavily, where changing people's opinions has a mechanical function to it. D&D doesn't really as much. So adding a class that does that strikes me as a little awkward, because what's everyone else doing? Everyone else, they're, they're just spellbound. They can't really say much. Those are the core uh, cl- subclasses for Bard. So let's talk about what makes Bards cool and why we like Bards. They can do little bits of everything. At least that's why I like them. Yeah, they are totally a jack-of-all-trades class. Honestly, I'd say more so than the Rogue is. Because they get all the skills, but they also get spells. And while they don't get the like stealth abilities of the Rogue, they don't need them. Because the stealth abilities is what makes the rogue so interesting. Stealth seems pretty antithetical to being a bard. If you're a bard, you're out there performing, you want to be seen. Yeah, there's a comic I've seen that's been going around about uh, a pair of bards giving each other advantage, uh, giving each other inspiration to help with stealth checks. and, (laughs) And minions just hearing eerie music coming from somewhere that they can't spot. That's pretty good. Yeah, so that would be pretty entertaining. A group of bards pulling off a heist and just this, the intercom just constantly playing music that no one can figure out the source of. Although a group of bards pulling off a heist would probably just talk their way in, so. Probably. Even, I just like the idea of a party entirely composed of bards. It seems like you get get up to a lot of shenanigans that way. Yeah, there, I've, I've seen a couple of things about, like, band parties that are all bards that are a traveling band or a traveling... Uh, performance group which is a fantastic idea and i would love to play one i i ran a game that was all monks once and we'll we'll talk about that when we get to the monk class that was a pretty great like kung fu movie nice also had one of the best death by lavas that i've had in a game but you know (laughs) that's what you get for failing that acrobatics check and then failing the multiple dexterity saving throws i gave you on the way down it's exactly what happened to my artificer because he had a uh, strangely crippling weakness to bridges constantly falling off of bridges and falling into running water and running lava that one time yep but he didn't die to those no he just died to a goblin with a flaming stick yeah the, the goblin with the flaming stick was um was much scarier but yeah, so bards. Bards are interesting. As a DM, I like bards because they can be used as a support class, or a support NPC. If your party is having difficulties, if your party is um, short on healers or just short on players, and you need to give them something to help them along, a bard works really well. Because you can have the bard be a level or two below the party, and be there maybe to tell stories about the party or to research something and they're just the party drags them along and you know you can give people inspiration rather than like actively fighting you can cast healing spells they the bard can like 
look at the item and give them exposition when they need it. The bard can use the Song of Rest when they have to take a short rest and heal up. It, it provides a lot of utility, and because you would just let it tag along with the party, it doesn't take away any cool things from the players. Man, why does the bard get to have all the fun? Yeah, well, the bard doesn't do anything besides just help out. And I've used that on a couple of occasions, when the party is missing people or doesn't have enough players. You know, just throw a random support bard in there and let the party do their own things while you have a bard to keep them alive. How are you? Uh, what kind of bards would you want to play or would you want to see? I know it goes against, like, the whole concept of the bard as a performer, but I'm always interested in the idea of bards just as artists. Like the idea of a bard who is a painter or illustrator, something that's not specifically performance or music-based. Because the whole idea of the bard is that they're using their art form to tell stories in one way or another. And it's usually through some kind of a performance, but I'm always curious... You know, there are other ways to tell stories besides performance. What if, you know, this person is doing epic illustrations of, you know, various battles or encounters that he's had with the group? Or, um, I don't know, maybe you're running some kind of weird Victorian campaign where you have, like, some kind of daguerreotype uh, photographer bard who's like, all right, now everybody stand still for 120 seconds while I get this image. Yeah, or you could borrow from uh, something like the Terry Pratchett fantasy books and have the, um, oh, I forget what they call it, but they have a camera thing, except it has a tiny imp inside who paints a picture. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea, but I know that mechanically, if you were trying to somehow integrate that into a combat encounter, that might not necessarily work. I mean, if you had them maybe, like, doing fast sketches? It would take some brain power to kind of figure out, in a homebrew manner, how that would work. A magical paintbrush, perhaps? Yeah, that was another thing I was thinking of. Kind of like uh, Okami, where you have the celestial paintbrush that comes down and, like, paints things into the world. I think it's a possibility. It would just take some homebrewing to figure out how exactly you want that to work in your game. I very much doubt we'll see that show up in, like, any kind of official D&D product, because I think that strays fairly far from what Wizards' uh, conception of the Bard class is. I mean, you could definitely do a creation Bard that, like, takes the creation aspect very literally and the musical aspect being not very literally... Yeah, that's kind of where I figure that that idea might fit in most. Especially if you were doing something where, like, you know, you're if you're doing a sketch and you're drawing something, you know, you have that character or that illustration come to life and somehow interact with whatever the other characters are doing. Um, or it could be like a tinkerer kind of artificer thing where they make little inventions and, like, throw them out and those come to life and help people. What is my purpose? You pass the mead. You pass inspiration. Yes, that's even better. Get rid of that other joke. <laughs> oh, we're keeping that. Yeah, so that could be cool. I think that's interesting, certainly. 
I also I want would like to see bards that are not like like you said you can do things that aren't music, um, which is cool. Uh, I do have a like soft spot for bards or people playing bards who actually do music. Like they bring in, yeah, actually bring in a musical instrument or like recite poetry or whatever. Oh, like actually bring in a musical instrument. I've always been tempted to get a lute and like bring a lute to a D&D session, but I don't know how to play the lute. I do have a guitar. I'm really bad at it, but you know, in theory, could do that. I feel like using a ukulele is probably the easy mode. Yeah, ukulele works. Um, I could never do this myself as I am so not musical. I've tried a variety of musical instruments, but my attention span is limited, so I've never really stuck with any one in particular. Bass guitar would probably be the closest one, but it's kind of hard to play a bass guitar on your own if you're not in a band, so it's more difficult to upkeep than just playing on your own with a regular electric guitar. Yeah, and I'm I'm not musical, so that doesn't really work for me. I'd have to do, like, limericks or stand-up comedy or something as a bard. Stand-up comedy, that's kind of where I tend to land. Um, if I'm playing a bard, just whatever pun or bad joke or humorous thing I can do in the moment, that's usually my substitute. You gotta flavor vicious mockery somehow. Yep. Which is um, kind of the bard's iconic attack spell for some reason. Uh, vicious mockery. You just make fun of people and it does a small amount of psychic damage. Weirdly enough, it works on things like anything that can hear you, even if it doesn't understand your language. All I can tell is that by its tone, it's mocking me. You can you can use it against like undead and it works. Bards, man. They don't have to deal with logic or any of that. Oh, and I suppose we should talk about the bard archetype best known. Is this the, is this the horny bard? The horny bard, yes. Um, which is not a tiefling that is also a bard. Although tiefling bards are popular because they get a charisma bonus in 5th edition. But rather the bard that is going to sleep with everything. I still occasionally get a chuckle out of that stereotype. I think by this point it's kind of played out because it is a pun incoming one-note joke. Yeah. But, I mean, if it fits in with your group and those kind of jokes don't cause issues with any of your players, if that's, you know, kind of well within their boundaries of comedy, I'd say go for it. But you definitely could run into issues where those kinds of jokes or that kind of character can easily rub up against somebody's sensibilities and as far as making them uncomfortable or making your table not feel like safe space. Yeah. And it's important to, you know, have a have your D&D game be a place where everybody is having fun. And if your characters aren't letting everyone have a good time, then you you need to rethink what's going on. That being said, the horny bard, I don't know where it came from aside from I guess the notion that high charisma equals seduction easy. I assume it came from the bowels of the internet somewhere as a meme. Honestly, I think it probably predates the internet because rolling to seduce the waitress is such an old joke. I did see one story, though, where uh, the bard was trying to seduce a character. I think it was like their big bad end boss who was a lich. And during the conversation, he was going to try and 
seduce this enemy character. So the DM just leans forward on Bolt's hand and says, okay, seduce me. And the player playing the part got really uncomfortable really fast. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if, if that's how you want to roll with it, you can always just ask them to play it out more than they're comfortable with. But And I think, I think in this particular instance, from the story, the, the DM was kind of fed up with the bard player's shenanigans, so he's like, okay, I'm going to try and put an end to this. It seemed like it worked. Yeah, um, if it's outside of the, like, where your campaign should be, you, you either talk to them, or if that doesn't work, you do something like that. I would always suggest talking to a player outside of the game before doing this, but if they keep it up, you can definitely use stuff inside the game to dissuade them. But yeah, bards. They don't have to be horny. They don't have to be good at music. They do have to be good at inspiring and stuff. Yeah, and you don't even... They don't even necessarily have to be funny, which seems to be kind of the default tone of the class, is the bard is a kind of always a weird, goofy character. If you don't want to play a goofy bard, you don't have to. Yeah, you can play a College of Whispers bard and be edgy. Maximum edgelord. Yeah, be more edgy than the rogue. <laughs> Out-edging the rogue, rogue that's, a, that's a feat right there. Well, I mean, the bard is the jack-of-all-trades, so... Alright, so, last section, since we're done with bards, it's board game time! Yay, board games. Ed, you can take this one. Why don't you tell me about the Dark Souls board game that you have been playing through? Oh boy. So, I think the original idea of this segment was, like, board games that both of us had played and would both make recommendations for. I could have been wrong on that assumption. I don't know if it was that we would both make uh, recommendations for, but it's board games that we have played and have opinions about. We've done ones that we liked recently because it's easier to do ones that we've both done or that we like a lot and can talk about. But remember, I did play Dark Souls. Yeah, you played, you played a game with myself and another member of our group. I remember you didn't care for it, and the reasons that you had pointed out i think are much more apparent going around in my solo campaign i think by far the biggest issue that this game runs into is that it has a ticking clock mechanic that the actual dark souls uh video game does not have because in the video game if for those of us who haven't played it the game is known as being really hard um it's very specific and precise as to how it wants to be played and the idea is that you know you're gonna keep running into this wall over and over and over again and every time you die you drop whatever soul resources you're carrying and you try and make it back to pick up those souls and hopefully defeat the boss again or defeat the boss so that you can continue on and aside from dropping the souls that you're carrying or losing whatever humanity you've used for that run there really isn't any penalty for failure in Dark Souls, the only way to really, fa really fail at the game is to s just straight up stop playing, which I tend to do from time to time because it's the only game that makes me want to throw a controller through a TV. And that doesn't really work well for a board game because otherwise you're just going to be stuck in this infinite loop held hostage by your host, you know, 
begging to be let free of this game. So there has to be some kind of endpoint, which in this case works as lives. You start off with a number of sparks that dictate how many times you can go through the map to try and finish the game. And that works, you know, if you die, you lose a life, you start over, try again. Only problem is that if you want to reset the board so that you can run through it again to gather more souls because you need the souls that you get from finishing each tile on the map to level up, and leveling up and getting new items that allow you to continue takes so many souls that you're actively punished every time you reset the board because it, lo it takes down one of your available lives. And that really hamstrings the conception of try, try, try again that Dark Souls is supposed to have. And I can understand from a mechanical standpoint how it's kind of like a press-your-luck thing of I made it to the boss, I'm not ready to fight the boss, I'm going to sacrifice one of my remaining lives to try and gather more souls to be prepared. But at the same time, if you've made it all the way to the boss, there's no point in not fighting the boss and dying anyway, other than the fact that you might drop all your souls. But if you're like me and you spend all your souls before you get to the boss for that reason, there's really no point to not just dying. And so resetting the board and using a life is kind of pointless. Um, so that's the biggest issue that I have with the game as far as how it works mechanically. That the ticking clock aspect of it doesn't work well with the like board game nature and it makes the game really hard and uncomfortable to play. Yeah, you could you could have a ticking clock in a board game. I mean, it happens all the time. You know, your pandemics or your uh, uh, Call of Cthulhu's, they have that ticking clock of, you know, whenever X happens, your Doom track goes up one and you're one step closer to failing the game. But with Dark Souls, that clock also goes down in the process of trying to prepare yourself for the end of the game. And it, it just makes it not work. That's all I can really say, say about that. But I think where this game really does work is as a single player strategic game, which are fairly common in the war game, uh, the historical wargaming sphere where you have some kind of scenario, whether you're like a bomber pilot or a tank driver, and you're up against some kind of AI that the board game or card game uses, and you're trying to fulfill the requirements of whatever scenario you're doing. And I think that's where Dark Souls works best. Even though it's made specifically to have more players, and the more players you have, the encounters are, in theory, easier, because every monster on the board gets to move before you make a move, so it's really easy to get ganged up on. But if you're playing with other players, the game is so precise and there is a definite correct response to whatever is happening on the board that you're going to end up with a quarterback almost immediately, probably whoever's teaching the game. And it's going to turn into that one player telling everybody else how to move their pieces and everybody else just kind of following along compared to like a D and D scenario where, you know, there's a little bit of leeway. There's some, you know, dice shenanigans that can happen. 
that everybody contributes kind of in their own way and you can end up with scenarios where people, you know, save each other's bacon or weird things go awry. That doesn't happen for Dark Souls, so I'm finding it much more enjoyable as a single-player tactical puzzle than I have in the past playing it with other players. It's a, it's a very large board game. Uh, I got it through Kickstarter. It was the first thing I ever kickstarted. It took, I think, three and a half years for everything to finally get delivered. I've run through the first two-thirds of the first campaign. Right now, I'm at the final end boss. But I think just based on the math of the action economy and how that works, I don't think I'm going to be able to beat these guys. I'm going to tr probably try and run through some of the other scenarios, um, especially the ones that came as part of the Kickstarter process. There's one for the Darkroot Garden, which has a bunch of like evil plants. Uh, there's one for the Iron Keep, which has a lot of interesting kind of clockwork mechanical enemies. Um, there's some giant mega bosses, which are absolutely huge models. They're by far the biggest ones I own. Those look like they can absolutely wreck your day as a player character. So I would like eventually to try and get through those, but it is a very long game, which is another point in its favor of being a single-player strategic puzzle, is that it will take you a long time to make it through all this content. So if you like Dark Souls and you don't mind the rules being in dire need of editing and even possibly a second edition, you could give Dark Souls a try. There's probably a lot of nerds out there who are disappointed with the product or it's been so long they're like, yeah, I've had my fun with it. You know, give it a shot. Even if you're not necessarily into the game itself, if you're looking for really good, like, kind of horror fantasy miniatures, the miniatures for Dark Souls are pretty cool. I've used them for... Frostgrave a lot when I need, like, undead soldiers. The undead knights and all that from Dark Souls work really well. So it's a it's a tentative recommendation. I would say unless you're a fan of Dark Souls specifically, it probably won't do anything for you if you're just, you know, a regular board gamer who has no knowledge of the video game version. It would be a hard recommend, recommendation. But if you want to try and translate... Dark Souls video game onto a board game. It might be worth your time. Yeah, so Dark Souls. Recommended for single player, but not for multiplayer. Or if you just want cool miniatures. Much like the Dark Souls board game, this is one that's best experienced solo. Uh, I think that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about Something I don't remember. Yeah, next week we'll talk about something else. But, last thing, we want to do some shout-outs and such. Uh, buy Nothing Black Friday. Uh, this episode comes out the week, the week of Thanksgiving. And we would like to encourage everyone who listens to us to not buy anything on Black Friday. Because Black Friday is terrible. Don't do Black Friday, that's all I know. You've already got enough miniatures... Paint the ones you have first. Okay, that 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 is true. I do have to paint all the ones I have first. Uh, don't buy stuff on Black Friday. If you're going to do buy stuff this coming weekend, do it on Small Business Saturday and support your local game stores. Yep, give them your money. Give them all of it. They probably need it. Maybe not all of it, but if you're going to buy stuff, 
buy it from a local vendor.